0: morning. The snow is beautiful, but it sure is treacherous at times, isn't it? Before I get started here, last week when I was flying back from San Diego, uh, most of us have probably flown at one time or another, and uh, the flight from San Diego to Kansas City dropped off or stopped off at Albuquerque. So we went up, and we were up for about an hour or so, and then we came back down, and uh, there'd been some Snow and, and things like that in the area a couple of days before, so you know I'm not real thrilled about flying in ice and snow and everything. But the weather was pretty good. But once we were up and got up to our ceiling, which was right around 40,000 feet or whatever it was, and you look out the window and you see this blanket of white, and it's just like a mattress. And you look up and it's just nothing but blue and <coughs> As I thought about that, and as we started to come down and the ground got a little closer, it was uh, kind of a humbling in thinking of how big the world really is and how small I really am. And um, I thought about the song, uh, one of my favorite songs of "O Lord our Lord," and where the verse says that it uh, talks about the heavens and the skies and the stars above, and but yet you took me and you loved me and you've given me a crown, and individually he's given each one of us that crown. And, what a great thing that is. And uh, it was a good time to reflect. Um, my flight into Kansas City wasn't so good, but uh, getting home was nice. So, <coughs> excuse me, I'm kind of battling a cold and some sinus problems, and so my voice is a little creaky and cracky, so just bear with me. The last time we got together, <coughs> the scripture we were talking about was. Romans, chapter 12, and it was the verses 9 through 21. <clears throat> and it's dealing with Christian behavior. And I don't think I mentioned this the last time, but uh, this these 13 verses or so are broken down into specific responsibilities that we have. Uh, responsibilities that we have to each other as Christians, brothers and sisters. Responsibilities we have to others in the world, the non-believers. And then even that terrible thing of responsibilities we have to those who we we consider our enemies. Um, And hopefully we don't have any enemies, but uh, it addresses that in there. So, (coughs) we went through verse 13, and I'm just going to go back briefly over what we talked about the last time, because it's been a couple of months ago. The first thing we talked about was love, and We talked about how important love was and how, in this list of our behaviors, Paul put that at the very beginning. And I didn't think there was any coincidence in that because love is a very important aspect of our Christian life. In fact, if you remember, in Matthew 22, when the Pharisees again were trying to trick Jesus and they asked him what the greatest commandment was. And he said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And then he follows that up with uh, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. (coughs) So again, I don't think it's any coincidence that Paul told us that love was probably the most important behavior that we should exhibit as a Christian. But not, not to stop there, he said that love should be without hypocrisy. Love should be genuine. It should be true. And it's more than just an emotion. It's an action. And I mentioned the Bud Light commercial that was on the Super Bowl here a few years ago that many of you may have seen, where it, it starts out with these three gentlemen on this pier. They're fishing, and the one on the end keeps looking back at the one in the middle, who's an older gentleman. It's probably their father. And he gets up and goes back and wraps his arm around him and starts telling him, Dad, how great you are and how you've done all these things for my life. And I really appreciate everything you've done. And the first thing out of his dad's mouth is, You can't have my beer, Johnny. He says, Oh, but I love you, man. <clears throat> so that wasn't the type of love that we're supposed to be exhibiting. Well, then we shifted from love to evil. And he tells us that uh, we're supposed to abort evil. We're supposed to hate evil. We're supposed to stay away from it at all times, to avoid it at all costs. And sometimes evil is obvious. Sometimes it's very apparent to us. But other times it's very subtle. And I thought about this. And I didn't mention this at first, but... Coming from an automobile background, um, all of us have automobiles and you've experienced rust on your car. And rust starts out, sometimes as a very little minute spot, and sometimes it's even undetectable. But as it goes and as it grows and as it, if it's not treated, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The next thing you know, it can cover your whole car. And that's how evil can work in our lives. It doesn't take much to get in, just a little spot. And the next thing you know, if you don't do something about it, if you don't treat it, it's covered your whole life. (coughs) Well, then he talks about being good and seeking what is good. And we should know what is good. And that's what we grab a hold of. That's what we take, like taking the reins, they say, grabbing hold of that. And just, that's what we want to lead our lives, is the good. That's what we pursue. It's our strength. It's security. I talked about little children. When you pick them up, the first thing they do is they want to wrap around you. They want to grab on. They want to hold tight. And that's how we should be. That's the strength. They get strength and security from that. We're their security. And God is our security. And attitudes towards each other. Our attitudes should be of affection and kindness. It's a brotherly love. It's not a physical attraction. It's not a sweaty palms and a thumpy heart. But it's... (coughs) It's how the world around us can identify us as Christians. That's one of the way that, <clears throat> one of the ways. Excuse me. Especially in the Book of John, in, in chapter 13, he tells us that Jesus says, "By this, all you will know that you are my disciples." Speaking of love, if you have love for one another. So, if it's a true love, if it's a genuine enough, a genuine love for each other, those around us can see that and they'll feel it and they'll know that it's true. And it's not just a Bud Light commercial. Next, we talked about preference in putting each other first and not ourselves. It's not a matter of selfishness. It's not a matter of selflessness. (coughs) It's an appreciation and admiration that we truly have for each other. Then he talks about diligence and working hard, and whether that's at our jobs or whether that's at raising our children or whether that's with our relationships with each other reading the Scriptures, being involved. And I made the comment that if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. If something is literally worth doing, if, if we're going to put forth the effort to do it, then we should do it well. Next he talks about hope, and our hope is centered around Christ and His return. And it's that assurance of salvation that we have through Him you know this, this type of hope that we're talking about here it's not something that's uncertain it's not man I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow so it ruins my golf game it's more a hope that we know that Christ is coming back it's a certainty that just hasn't been realized yet he talks about joy and rejoicing and uh, it's an everlasting joy It's a joy that continues through our lives and I thought about today's the Super Bowl tonight and maybe one of your favorite teams is playing in this game and maybe you followed them all year long and and uh, now that they've got into the Super Bowl you're excited when they made the playoffs, you're excited when they got into the championship game and now they're in the Super Bowl and even if they win you may be excited and thrilled but that joy is only going to last a certain time soon it's going to fade because it's, it's earthly, it's worldly. It's not, it's not the joy in Christ that we have. And he talks about perseverance and being patient through difficult times. And we know they're coming. We know we've already had some. Paul writes, Tribulation. And it's not a matter of if, but when. We will experience these. It's going to come. There's no doubt. He tells us to be patient persevere God is faithful and Paul tells us the best way to combat this tribulation is just by being consistent again being diligent steadfastly in prayer you know seek ye first the kingdom of God reach out to him because we want God's will to be done in our lives his plan is perfect sometimes we think ours is a lot of times we think ours is Think about that. Was there ever really a time in your life when you really thought that you had it figured out? You just knew what happened. If it it turned out the way you thought, that's great. But it might not have. And if it didn't, we need to persevere and be patient. God doesn't make mistakes. We do. (coughs) one thing I I, uh, take to heart is the Bible says this too shall pass. The the bad times, if we're in bad times, difficult times, it will pass. On the flip side of that though, if it's good times and happy times, it will pass too. So again, think about a situation in your life where you might have thought, wow, I just can't get any worse than this. And what was the outcome? What happened? How did it all turn out? What did you do? Did you pray? Was that the first thing you did? Or was it, well, if all else fails, I guess I'll pray? <clears throat> Sometimes we get caught up in that. Or it's a, well, we, I guess we can always pray. <clears throat> That's not what God wants from us. He wants the first fruits, He wants us to come to Him first. Matthew 7 7 says, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. He wants us to come. He tells us to come. He tells us that if we do, then our prayers will be answered. It may not be in our time frame. It may not be the way we really wanted it to be, but it will be answered. (coughs) And then the last verse, verse 13, he talks about distributing to the needs of the saints, our fellow Christians and also given to hospitality. We need to have friendship. We need to have fellowship. And we need to help each other out when there's a need. And the church, our little church, is very good at doing that. It's helping others out. There's many times that, um, whether it be helping someone move, helping someone with a project around their house, uh, for a church our size, uh, I think we do a super job of doing that. And that's what Paul says we're supposed to do. He was a very staunch supporter of the church body, that's you and me, helping each other. You know, our needs are different. We all have different gifts, spiritual gifts. And Paul talks about those uh, in verses 3 through 8. But he wants us to use them. God gave those to us to use them whether that's taking of our time or whether that's taking of our effort, whether it's Mike meeting with someone that uh, needs some encouragement or whether that's, again, us helping someone with a project around their home or moving or whatever it may be. And he also wants us to be hospitable. He wants us to share of ourselves. And I think we do a good job of that, too. Our home groups is a, is a good way to share with each other. And if any, again, if anyone's not in a home group, I really uh, suggest that they do that, because it's a great time. You think about <coughs> some of the things that have happened, too, over the years. The Whippermans uh, took in that exchange student here a while back, and that's hosp- that's being hospitable. That's opening your home. <coughs> TBC, uh, I remember when they would have groups, singing groups or caroling groups or whatever would come in at times and there'd be a busload of them, they would ask for people to uh, open their homes and take these, these young men and young ladies in and give them a place to stay and feed them. And, and that's being hospitable. That's what God wants us to do. It would have been very easy to just say, well, there's a hotel down the road and, you know, I'm sure you can get rooms there, but that's not what they did. You know, we have opportunities and we're so blessed to live in this country that so many people around the world don't, especially just with the freedom that we enjoy from living in this country. So not only should we share our faith with others, especially those who don't know Christ, but let's share it of ourselves too with those who do. (coughs) Okay. If you have your Bibles, Romans 12, this morning we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 14 reads, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That's kind of a strange thing to say, I thought, when I first read that. Part of the reason was because I really wasn't sure what it meant to bless someone. Someone sneezes and I say, bless you, but I don't know if that's really what he wants me to say or wants me to do. So I looked it up in the Christian Dictionary, and the Christian Dictionary defines bless is to pray for God's favor upon someone or something. okay? And to persecute is to treat cruelly or cause to suffer. And curse is a calling on God to send down evil upon some person or thing, or verbally abuse, or there's there's different definitions for this, blasphemous, profane, or obscene language. <clears throat> so I thought about that, and I didn't, even, I didn't think about this when I was writing this, but this morning as I was driving in, and it was a little slick and treacherous out there, and uh, I put this in perspective as when we're driving, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, and you're, let's just say you come home for lunch, and you know that it takes 12 and a half minutes to get back to work, and you leave just in time, and there's somebody in front of you that uh, doesn't care whether you get to work on time or not. They're not particularly worried about where they go at any particular time. And uh, so it frustrates you a little bit. And in, in that particular situation, are you blessing them? Are you calling down God's favor upon them? Or are you cursing them? We are called to pray for God's favor upon anyone who is treating us cruelly or trying to cause us to suffer. And that's hard to do. And we're not to use blasphemous or obscene language against them. I understand that a little bit better now, but it's, it's not our natural tendency. That's, unfortunately for most of us, it's just not. Restraint is just one of those attributes that doesn't come real easily to some of us. But we are told, we are commanded that that's what we're supposed to do. We want to take matters in our own hands. That's not what we're supposed to do. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43-45. He says, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute, and persecute, excuse me, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And here's the key to this whole verse For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So even those that we might consider evil still enjoy the benefits from God. They still get the sunshine, they still get the rain. They still get the atmosphere to breathe. His grace and mercy are His to give, not mine, not ours. And that's to whoever He wants. In fact, in John 3.16, remember what He said. God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that for whoever believed in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever, that's an open invitation. That's not a closed invitation. That's anyone. In our Growing Kids God's Way class, there's a chapter in there on moral training. <coughs> Excuse me. And Gary Ezzo writes, and I, I really related to this, he writes, The moral mandate of Scripture is looking for and responding to the preciousness of those outside of self. This response is not at the expense of self, but in harmony with self. It's living out a manner of life that reflects Christ in us. And then... He writes that we should not base our conduct toward others, you, me, on how valuable they are to us, but on how beloved they are to God. And when I read that, I thought, wow. Because I didn't look at it that way. I really didn't look at it that way. Because we all know that you know God, the, the Bible says God loves the sinner, but He hates the sin. So, any of these uh, terrible people down through the years that we can talk about, the Mussolini's and Hitler's and Saddam Hussein's, it's hard for me to realize and even think about loving someone like that because of what they've done and what they've caused and the destruction and damage and pain and suffering. But God still loves them. And it's just hard for me to fathom. But we need to remember that this person that may be persecuting us it's not up to us to show <coughs> that we're not fond of them because god says that they're still beloved to him and you know we may never experience persecution in our lives at least like the early christians did or even some do now in other parts of the world there's still being persecuted extremely, dying every day. And you know, it would be easier for me, and probably for the rest of us, to pray for God's favor upon someone who's calling me intolerant or calling me a hate monger or whatever that is, than someone who's literally trying to kill me. But we don't have the option. That's not what He tells us to do even if it's just because of my faith alone that they're trying to kill me. I don't have the option. What's the verse that says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you? I think most all of us remember that one. We should. Would you rather have someone pray for God's favor upon you or trying to end your life? If you flip-flop that. Maybe they're just trying to destroy your reputation. You know, this year, 2003, is a presidential election year. And uh, I don't know about you, but how many of you just can't wait for all the presidential campaign commercials on TV? Anybody? We know what they're like. At first they're not too bad. The, the candidates actually will tell you what they're going to do. But the closer it gets to the election, the mud raking, the smear tactics, everything comes out. And this, this is a perfect example of what we're not supposed to do. These are people that we're voting for to put into office, and they're not setting a very good example. If you were to ask most of these candidates if they were Christians, they would probably tell you that they are. Most of them would. Some of them may not. Once again, they want to be PC. You know, they, don't want to, they want to make sure they get all the votes they can, and, it's, and they're not really worried about how they get them. And even if their conduct and attitude would suggest the opposite. So I figured this is probably what we're going to hear then. This is, this is one of the candidates speaking about the other one. He's going to say his running opponent is just a fantastic person. He's a great man. And he'd be a good choice. He'd be a good choice to put in office. Has a great family, has a great history, a great past. He's done a fantastic job at everything he's done up to this point, so far in his political political career. And if I wasn't running against him, I'd even vote for him. I don't think that's what they're going to say. I just don't think that's how it's going to turn out. But, if they're blessing and not cursing, that's what it should sound like. So you know what's going to happen. They're going to dig up as much dirt. They're going to dig up as many things as they can throw at them and slander. They're going to try and find as many skeletons in the closet as they possibly can. And they're trying to ruin their reputation. They're trying to make them look worse than they are. And they're they are they're cursing and not blessing. They're doing just the opposite. Again, that's a great example, right? No. No, we're supposed to bless and do not curse. Here's our example. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 23. Peter's speaking here in the context of submission. And he says verse 21 for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us leaving us as an example that you should follow his steps who committed no sin and that's a that's a quote from Isaiah 53 nor was deceit found in his mouth who when reviled which is verbally uh, assaulted or verbally abused he did not revile in return he didn't he didn't say anything back <clears throat> excuse me anything bad back and when he suffered He did not threaten, but committed himself to Him who judges righteously. Now, Jesus had every opportunity to strike back. He could have called down the army of angels, and He could have. um, He has the power to do that, but what did He do? When He was hanging on the cross, after everything He'd been through, the beatings, the insults, the pain, the suffering, what does He do? He asked, them to be forgiven. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's our example. He prayed for God's favor upon those who were persecuting Him. He, he called down God's favor upon them. Once again, that's our example. That's our benchmark, so to speak, if you will. If that were you or me hanging on that cross... Is that what we would have done? I mean, it's unlikely that we'll ever be in a situation like that. But we will be persecuted somehow, some way. It's going to happen. How are we going to respond? Some food for thought. We know how we're supposed to. Once again, the $64,000 question is will we Verse 14, Paul writes, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. All of us, I don't think anybody would be excluded in that, have a strong desire to be joyful. We want to experience joy. We want to be happy. We want good times. We want to laugh. We want to cheer. You know, they say laughter is the best medicine. It really... Uh, physically it's better for us to laugh than it is to cry. And that's okay because God wants us to be joyful. But p- what Paul's telling us here, he's reminding us, is that we don't need to be the direct recipient of that joy to be joyful. We don't have to be the one that just got the new house or just got the new car or whatever it may be just had the new baby, to be joyful. He wants us to share in others' joy. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's referring to the church as a body of believers. And he says, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. It's a mutual love, and that's our rejoicing. And it's a mutual pain or suffering, and that's that's our weeping. You know, when we adopted our children, first of all, Daniel and Senecia, and then obviously Devin and Andrew later, this, as far as the church goes, or as far as anyone basically sitting in this room here other than my wife, it had no direct effect on any of you. It didn't change your lives. But you rejoiced with us. You were happy. And it was a true happiness, it was a true rejoicing. It wasn't just, oh, that's nice. And that was a highlight to me and to us because we knew that it was a genuine rejoicing with us. You know, in the last couple of years, when you think about it here in the church, we've had some great additions to our family, our church family. We think of all the babies that have been born. I hope I don't miss any of them, but there's Isaiah and Janelle and Benjamin and Ava Grace and Anna and Isaac. And every time one of those babies was born, we rejoiced. Because it was a great thing to see God bring another life into this world and another life into lion and lamb. We shared in their joy. There wasn't any direct um, feeling for me. I mean, I, I didn't experience the birth, I wasn't there, but I experienced the joy that comes with that. Down through the years, we've celebrated birthdays and anniversaries, graduations from high school we've shared together. And speaking of graduations, um, I mentioned earlier that I was flying back from San Diego. And uh, the reason I was out in San Diego was because Chris Davenport uh, was graduating from boot camp. And I had the opportunity to go and experience the graduation ceremony and everything that came with that. And when we first got there Thursday morning, we opened the gates really early, like at 6.30 in the morning. So it was still basically dark, but we pull in and we can see some little dark bodies out marching around on what they call the grinder, which is the parade deck, and they call it the grinder because they get them out there and just grind them into it. But anyway, they're out there marching around, and uh, you can't really tell who it is, and you don't even know if it's their platoon or their or their company. But as you're walking through the crowd, you can hear the people saying, oh, "Is that Jimmy? Is that Billy? That looks like that looks like John," and they can't tell because it's dark. But they thought that they saw their son, their loved one. They were rejoicing. There he is. And then a little bit later on, they. Uh I never did figure this out, but they have what they call a motivation run, a four-mile run. It didn't motivate me or wouldn't have motivated me, but it was supposed to motivate them. And they brought them out, and they were all in their little green shorts and green t-shirts and green tennis shoes, and they had them all standing at attention, and you could actually walk up and down and look at them. I mean, they were close. You couldn't get too close. But they couldn't look at you. They couldn't turn their heads. They couldn't turn their eyes. Uh Uh-uh. But once you got up there again, all the people were, there he is, there he is, there he is. They hadn't seen these young men for almost three months, a little over three months. And they were rejoicing. And just to experience that with them, what a feeling. And then even better off, the next day, when the actual graduation ceremony itself, and they marched them around the parade deck and brought them down and had the parade Um, I don't know what all they called it, but uh, they brought them around and marched them around then brought them back and had them all stand right where they're supposed to be and at attention and the the commanding officer addressed them and they brought out the the staff sergeant or whoever he was that was in charge and he addressed them a little bit and then he gave them the one order that they had not heard the whole time they'd been there and that was dismissed. And, wow, you should have seen the like the relief on them, I mean, they're like, Whew. and then the, the whole stands just out onto the parade deck, and uh, it was a great sight to see, and, you know, i was so proud of all those young men, too, that's aside from the rejoicing, but, you know, as I thought about that, uh, there were 524 young men in his company, and each one of those young men is willing to put his life on the line for us, every one of them. So we should rejoice with each other, regardless of our situation. We may be going through a very difficult, trying time, and it may be horrible for us, but someone else is experiencing joy, and we should share in that joy with them. No envy, no jealousy. It's a genuine feeling of love and respect, and it's from the heart. In John 15, Jesus is explaining our relationship as believers to Him. And He says, He talks about being the vine and we are the branches. And you think about that. If we're pulled away from the vine, we'd wither and we'd dry up. But He says, He who abides in Me and I in him bears much fruit. And this is the obedience. And then in verse 11, He says, These things I have spoken to you that My joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Again, he wants us to be joyful. He wants us to experience joy. <coughs> but he also wants us to understand that the true joy and rejoicing is attained through obedience to his commandments. And if we're obedient to him, then we can experience true joy. If we're disobedient, disobedience never brings anything but but destruction. So our obedience to him is true joy. And I'd like to say, as I think about this, that the joy in our lives is going to outweigh the sorrow. I'd like to say, okay, the good times are here, and we know we've got five years of good times, we don't have to worry about it. We can't do that. Because in some of our lives, the sorrow may outweigh the joy. I'm sure many of us might say, even at this point in some of our young lives, I've already experienced enough sorrow for my life. I don't need any more. I'm sure we all feel that way. And we probably have good reason to say that. We may experience some very difficult things in our lives. So on the other side of the joy then, Paul tells us that we should weep with those who weep. And none of us really want to weep. I mean, there's tears of joy, and I see that. I saw a lot of that when I was in San Diego. But for the most part, the tears are coming from pain or from suffering or from from hurting. And we should be merciful. We should be compassionate. And we need to be sensitive to the needs of others. And not only have we shared, and we talked about it a minute ago, the births of these babies and, and some joy in our lives, graduations and things like that, but we've also experience some pain together. Some of us have lost loved ones. We might have lost our job or about to lose our job. Or we may be struggling in some sort of a relationship. I mean, the list goes on. You can fill in the blanks. And if I'm suffering through a difficult situation and I keep it to myself and I don't let others know, then I'm being unfaithful. I'm not trusting in God's elect, as Paul calls us, God's elect of brothers and sisters. I'm not trusting in the rest of us. Paul calls us simply my brothers and sisters in Christ, and he calls us to lift each other up. You know, I may not want everyone to know every little minute detail that happens in my life. And, and many of us don't. And there may be good reason for that again. But listen to what James says about this. Chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, he says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And this healing is not just limited to illness. This could be whatever suffering we're experiencing. The the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He wants us to pray. He wants us to share in each other's strugglings and sufferings, too. Our day-to-day lives are a struggle, physically and spiritually, and as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are commanded to share the needs of each other. The bad times are going to come, and we definitely need to be there to weep with each other when they do. We need to be strong for each other. Verse 16. As Christians, we need to treat each other the same. We were all created equal, created in God's image. In His eye, we're all the same. There's no social standings with God. There's no upper class, middle class, lower class. That's all man's doing, that's all man's design. Listen to what James says about this again in in chapter 2. He says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there. You sit at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised us to those who love him? So when we look at each other, we're not supposed to see Armani or Gucci or Calvin Klein, or Tommy Hilfiger, or whatever it may be. And I'm not saying that that's wrong to be wearing those or buying those. But that's not who we are. That's not who we are. James just told us that by judging the outward appearance of someone, we have enlisted in evil thoughts. We're placing the value of this person on how they look. I'm sure many of us have experienced this when we were in school, especially grade school, because children sometimes can be cruel when they're younger. We've probably all been there. There's always the affluent families, and then you always have the families that aren't as affluent, that, that are poor, basically. They don't have the money. And it never fails that the affluent children from the affluent families pick on the children who are not so affluent. And uh, some of these children may be the, the, the most intelligent in the class. They may be the brightest students, but yet because of where they live, how they dress, what kind of car their parents drive, or whatever it may be, they're picked on because they're a lower standard. They're a lower class. They place value on the clothes or the house or whatever it is, and not on the person. And that's not what God wants us to do. In 1 Peter 3.8, he says, All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, and be courteous. That's the same thought. It's to treat each other, as, <clears throat> it's to treat each other equally, being of one mind, like-minded. It's unity, not separation. It's cooperation, not disruption. It's harmony, not disharmony. We shouldn't be selfish. We shouldn't be prideful. It's not me first. It's not I'm going to take all I can get before someone else gets there. That's not how we're supposed to be. That's not how we're supposed to look or how we're supposed to act. If we're going to call ourselves Christians and we want people to know, which we do, we want to be an example. We need to be an example. We need to be humble. Christ said in Matthew twenty-three, twelve, "And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." That's our that's our goal. That's our um, pattern. That's our blueprint. And I I know I don't have all the answers. And I don't want to be wise in my own own eyes because there's many things that I don't even have a clue about. There's many things I don't understand about living the Christian life. I'm learning, and the way I'm learning is right here. This is how I'm learning. I know where to look. Staying in the Word keeps us on the right track. It helps us stay focused. And there's so many things around us in this world that are trying to steal our focus or our attention. And if we truly want the world around us to know that we're Christians, it has to be more than just an outward appearance. We can't just look the part. We have to be the part. And that's what Paul's telling us how to do. Before I close here, I want to read (coughs) these verses from a song from one of my favorite contemporary Christian artist Stephen Curtis Chapman and the name of the song is The Change and many of you may have heard this but it goes as follows well I've got myself a t-shirt that says what I believe I've got letters on my bracelet to serve as my ID I've got the necklace and the keychain and almost everything a good Christian needs I got the little Bible magnets on my refrigerator door and to welcome Matt, to bless you before you walk across my floor. I got a Jesus bumper sticker and the outline of a fish stuck on my car. And even though that stuff's all well and good, I cannot help but ask myself, what about the change? What about the difference? What about the grace? What about forgiveness? What about a life that's showing I'm undergoing the change? And the change, of course, that he's talking about is to change from within. Remember Paul told us that we were a new person, we were a new being when we became a Christian. <coughs> and then he says, "Well, I've got this way of thinking that comes so naturally where I believe the whole world is revolving around me. And I got this way of living that I have to die every single day because if God's spirit lives inside of me, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to have the change. I'm going to have the difference. I'm going to have the grace. I'm going to have forgiveness." I'm going to have a life that's showing I'm undergoing the change. And that's what, that's what Paul wants us to do. And some of us may already be there, and that's fantastic. Some of us may still be working on it. But he's given us some rules here. He's given us some regulations and some guidelines to go by, and we can follow those. And if we follow those, then we'll be on the right track. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, and Lord... We know, Father, that we don't have all the answers. We know, Father, that uh, there's times in our lives that are difficult. There's times that if we had our option, we would have avoided at all costs. We would have stayed away from. Sometimes uh, that doesn't happen, and we get pulled in. We get sucked in, so to speak. And We need your love. We need your guidance. We need your strength, Lord, to... To pull us out of the muck and the mire that sometimes our, our daily lives get, get involved in. And we know where we can go. Father, we know who we can go to. The God of all creation, the God of the universe, the God that's told us he will never forsake us. Lord, may we just remember as we're as we're going through our daily lives, and whether that be at work or school and Situations arise that would be easy for us to fall into. That Paul tells us that we need to be an example. We need to be showing the rest of the world love and compassion. Lord, we need to be following the right path. And Lord, you've laid that out right before us. Bless us this day, Lord. Just protect us, and as we go back into the world of work tomorrow or school, may we just uh, be focusing on you, and may we be uh, desiring and, and diligent and striving to please you and be good servants to you. We love you, Father, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.